Well, good morning. Uh, welcome, everybody, joining us online. Good morning, everyone in the room. My name is Aaron, pastor here at Lake Forest Church. So excited today to continue in our series, The Whole Story. Now, before we get into that today, uh, I've got a question that I want to ask you to lead off our time today. And, and this is one of those questions where, you know, uh, you, you, you ask yourself questions in life. Some of you guys are goal setters, goal-oriented people. You've got some questions you ask yourself regularly that help keep you on track with goals. Or, or you try to help your kids ask questions, right, so they stay on track. And, and this is one of those questions that, that if you will ask yourself this question, it actually has the power, it, it has the potential to, to reframe or reshape even the direction of your life. To change how you live in moment-by-moment situations. Uh, and it's a very important question. So, so here's the question. You ready? Uh, here's, here's what I want you to ask. What would somebody like you, what would somebody in your circumstances, what would somebody like you, someone in your circumstances do if they were absolutely confident that God was with them? Right? What would somebody like you, what would somebody like me do, someone in my circumstances, in my situation, with my resources, my, what would somebody like me do, what would somebody like you do if they were absolutely confident that God was with them? Now, I don't want you to rush past this question too quickly. Uh, this is not just a sermon question. This is not just one of those rhetorical questions, right? This is an extremely important question because it's the question that drives for us the walk of faith. It, it will set for us the course of our faith. What would somebody in your circumstances do if they were absolutely confident that God was with them? Let me give you some examples. Maybe you're a senior in school and all of a sudden it's not looking like you're going to get into the school or into the job that you were hoping to get into. What would someone who is a senior do, someone in your circumstances do, if they were absolutely confident that God was with them? Okay, how about this one? Maybe you're a young parent and it's like an episode from the Twilight Zone and you're thinking, how did I end up here? What would a young parent like you do in your circumstances, if they were absolutely confident that God was with them. Or how about this one? Maybe you're a parent of teenagers. Well, never mind. God's not with you. Good luck. Um, maybe you're struggling in, in, with finances or, or in a relationship or you're in a marriage and it just feels like it's unraveling and you've done everything you can do to fix it, but, but the panic buttons are, are lights are going off and you're, you're pulling all the levers, you're doing everything you can, and it's just continuing to go down and down. Nothing seems to fix it. What would you do, what would someone like you do in that relationship, in that job, if they were absolutely confident that God was with them? Get a feel for this question? It's a powerful question. And I just love this question because this is the question that we are going to see Joseph ask over and over again in his life. It's one of the reasons why I love this story of Joseph so much. As I mentioned, we are in a series called The Whole Story. We're walking through the Bible this year in 2021 from the very beginning to the very end. And uh, today we come to the end of the first book of the Bible. We come to the end of the book called Genesis. Now earlier in this book, if you were with us, we, we heard about God promising to a guy named Abraham that he would bless him. But not simply would he bless him, but that the whole world would be blessed through Abraham, right? Blessed to be a blessing. And today, the writer of Genesis is actually going to illustrate for us, paint a picture of what that looks like, practically speaking, in the life, through the life of this guy named Joseph. 
Now, in order to understand what's going on today, uh, we have to understand something about the Bible, something that if you will understand this about how the scriptures work, it might change the very way you read the Bible. Namely, that the Bible is comprised of two stories. Did you know this? In the Bible, there is an upper story, God's story. And in the Bible, there is a lower story, the story of the human characters in that story. The upper story is God's story. It's the grand narrative where God is fulfilling his purposes, his objectives in the world. That's the upper story. And the lower story is the story of the human characters with all the complexities, the messy details of life. Now, even though these two stories seem to be independent, they're actually deeply, deeply connected to one another. You could think of it this way. It's kind of like Downton Abbey. Y'all remember Downton Abbey, right? Remember there are two floors in this house. There's the upper floor and the lower floor. You might imagine in Downton Abbey that what happens on the upper floor never, never has anything to do with what happens on the lower floor. But we all know that the lives of Lord and Lady Grantham, right, are intimately connected to the comings and goings of Mr. Carson or Daisy, the scullery maid. I had to read that one on Wikipedia. I don't even know what a scullery maid is, right? But you get the point here, right? The whole point of the show is to see how these two different storylines are interconnected. It is the same with Joseph. In these chapters we're going to look at today, we will get a glimpse of just how connected God's upper story and our lower story are. We ready? Now here's the thing. I'm going to ask you to fasten your seatbelts. We are going to preach through 13 chapters of Genesis today. So you can go tell grandma at lunch, grandma, what'd you do at church today? We preach through 13 chapters. We're going to do some hefty lifting. I've broken this down into four scenes. I'm going to walk through these quickly, and then we're going to get to the end. I'm going to draw some conclusions for us about what we learn about God's upper story and what we learn about the lower story. So if I lose you at any point, you know, go ahead and just pull out your phone, check Insta. You can pretend you're reading your Bible. It's okay. I'll call you back when we get back to the end. Were you ready to jump in? Scene number one. Scene number one, from favorite son to slave. Let me read this to you. This is the beginning of Joseph's story. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending flocks with his brothers, tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah. Some good Bible baby names, if you're looking for baby names there, his father's wives, and he brought their father a bad report about them. Now Israel, that's Jacob, another name for Jacob, loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, because he had been born to him in his old age, and he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Joseph had a dream And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. All right, so we're off to a pretty rotten start already, right? The story's just messy already from the get-go. Joseph is daddy's favorite, which is kind of ironic because if you were with us last week, you remember his father Jacob, well, his whole life was messed up by parents playing favorites. Now he's passing on that same dysfunctional tendency to his kids, uh, and not only that, but he's, he's gotten him this robe, right? And, and you might know this as, as the multicolored robe or, or the technicolor robe. It actually literally, technically was a long-sleeved robe. 
because in the ancient world, you, you didn't wear long sleeves if you had to do physical labor. That was just not a wise idea. So the fact that Jacob had this robe meant that all his brothers were responsible for doing the dishes, tending the laundry, mowing the lawn while Jacob sat in there and, and played Nintendo, right? He just did Rocket League all day or whatever he did on that. Well, Joseph starts out to having these dreams. God gives him these dreams. And then he adds insult to injury by telling his brothers these dreams. And the point of each dream is clear. One day, his brothers are going to bow down and serve him. Well, if you've ever had sons, you can imagine how well this goes over, right? <laughs> this is World War III right here. So one day, Joseph's brothers are out in the field tending the flocks. When Jacob, that's the father, says to Joseph, hey, Joe, listen, why don't you go jump in that new Jeep Renegade I got you, drive out into the field, check on your brothers, and just see how they're doing, right? So he does that. He jumps in there, and uh, he's got his MC Hammer robe on, you know, he's driving, it's flowing in the wind in his Jeep. You get the picture. So when his brothers see him coming, they just about lose it. Look with me at verse 19 and 20. Here comes that dreamer, they said to each other. I love this. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of those dreams of little Joe, right? You feel this? This is just drama. It's great. Well, thankfully, Judah, one of the older brothers, thinks for a minute. He says, you know what? What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother. Right? So you feel the brotherly love. We're not going to kill him. We're just going to sell him into slavery. Right? That's what you do to your siblings. And did you notice a little detail here? Who is it that they sell him to? The Ishmaelites. Remember earlier on, Abraham sleeps with his wife's servant. Kind of human trafficking right there. Hagar has the baby Ishmael. God's weaving these stories together. That's going to come back in. Watch this. Well, his brothers agree, and so Joseph is sold to these human traffickers. He's taken down to Egypt, and he's bought by a guy named Potiphar. Potiphar is the captain of the guard. He's like the head honcho uh, military dude in Egypt. And it's at the end of this scene, when we hear for the first time this powerful line, that is going to come back again and again and again in Joseph's story. Right at the very end, Joseph is at his lowest point, and we're told this, and the Lord was with Joseph. Can we say that together? And the Lord was with Joseph. Really? Really, God? Is this what it looks like when you're with someone? <laughs> if you were with me, none of this would have happened, Joe would have been thinking, right? If God was in charge, good stuff would happen to good people, and bad stuff would happen to bad people. I mean, come on, God, whose side are you on? The Lord was with Joseph, really? But let's come back for a minute and reflect at the end of this scene. When disappointment or hardship comes in your life, how do you, how would you respond to those circumstances if you knew God was with you? Scene two gets even crazier. Joseph does such a good job in this house that Potiphar begins to take notice. 
And so he puts Joseph in charge of everything, in charge of the whole house. Think Downton Abbey again, right? He's in charge of everything. Verse 5, from the time Potiphar put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. To which Joseph must have thought, uh, God, could you bless me because of me and not the Egyptian because of me, right? But you see, God was already doing what he had promised Abraham. He's beginning to bless others through Abraham's descendants. But the story goes on because Potiphar isn't the only one who takes notice of Joseph. Potiphar's wife also takes notice of this young man. And one day when Potiphar is out doing military things, we don't know, Mrs. Potiphar comes in with her tight jeans, her cougar heels on, and she's doing that walk like an Egyptian thing, right? Oh, come on. That was good. That was, that was worth the price of admission right there, right? That was just... Well, she comes in and she doesn't mince words. She propositions Joseph straight out. She could not be more direct. The only thing she says, y'all, this is in the Bible. She says, come to bed with me now, which has to be the most blunt come on line in all of the Bible. So once again, Joseph finds himself in a no-win situation. If he sleeps with her and Potiphar finds out, that dude is toast, right? But if he refuses her, she's just going to keep at it. So again, Joseph asks himself the question, what would someone in my circumstances do if they were absolutely confident God was with them? What would you do? Well, we see Joseph's response in the very next verse, verse 9. Look at what he says to Mrs. Potiphar. He says, I can't sleep with you, right? No one is greater in this house than I am. My master has withheld nothing from me except you because, by the way, you're his wife, right? How then could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? And you see, you see here, I think that this is a really tough decision for Joseph, right? I mean, we don't know. We, we know Joseph was really striking good looking. I don't, maybe Mrs. Potiphar was beautiful. I don't know. Maybe, well, maybe she was not as beautiful, right? Maybe this was an easy no, but, but Joseph is faced with this dilemma, and it's a really tough one. And when we're in despair, or when we find ourselves in a difficult situation, I think oftentimes this temptation to disobedience can sometimes seem like the best option. Sometimes it feels like, hey, we're in a no-win situation. I might as well choose the path of least resistance. Maybe a little dishonesty or a little deception might get me out of this jam I'm in. But Joseph refuses to disobey God, and he refuses to dishonor his master. Well, if you know the story, Mrs. Potiphar doesn't let up, and so Joseph ends up having to physically run away from her, unfortunately. Uh, for Joseph, Mrs. Potiphar is able to grab a hold of his coat. I don't know what it is for this guy in jackets and coats. He just keeps getting in trouble with these things. And she holds on to that coat as he runs away. She calls in the servants. She accuses him of sexual assault, and he is punished for the very thing he refused to actually do. Verse 20, Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. While Joseph was there in prison, here it is again, ready? The Lord was with Joseph. I mean, really? 
At some point, Joseph had to have thought to himself, God, if this is what it means for you to be with someone, I don't want you to be with me anymore, right? Go and be with someone else. In fact, why don't you go and be with my brothers? They would love to have you with them, right? But seriously, seriously, what would your outlook on life, what would your attitude be at this point? Would you have given up on God? Would you have given in to disobedience? What would someone in your circumstances do? See, the Bible paints this picture that Joseph held on to this truth. God, I don't get it. God, I can't see it. God, I don't understand it. But I'm going to trust that you are with me. And I'm going to make my decisions in light of that truth. Scene three. Y'all still with me? After several years in prison, here we go, a couple of Pharaoh's court servants get thrown in with them, a, a butler and a baker. I told you Downton Abbey's just going to keep showing up here. But, but both of them have had dreams, and they come to Joseph, and they tell him their dreams, hoping that Joseph can interpret them. Joseph says to the butler, here's what your dream means. Your dream means that within three days, you're going to be out of here. To the baker, he says, and here's what your dream means. Within the week, Pharaoh will hang you and the birds will pick away at your flesh and they will eat your eyeballs out of their sockets. It's true. It's, it's in the Bible. Y'all should read your Bible. This is straight out of the text. <laughs> sure enough, it all takes place exactly as Joseph said. And so Joseph says to the butler, the one who's going to live and make it, he says, listen, listen, when you get out of here and when you're in front of Pharaoh again, would you put in a good word with the Pharaoh for me, right? Would you help me out? Hook a brother up, right? And the baker's like, oh, yes, whatever, Joseph. I promise, I promise I'll do exactly that. And then he promptly went out and forgot about Joseph altogether. Well, two years later, Pharaoh has his own dream. And this one is even weirder than the ones that came before. There's some skinny cows eating fat cows. Right? Just kind of picture that. And both of the cows turn to Pharaoh and they say, eat more chicken. No, I'm kidding. They don't say that. But no one can figure out what these fat, skinny cow dreams are all about. And then suddenly the butler, the one who was in prison and Joseph interpreted the dream, he's suddenly the butler's like, oh, wait a second. I, I, yeah, I know a guy, right? And so he tells Pharaoh. And so they go and get Joseph and they bring Joseph in front of Pharaoh so that Joseph can interpret the dreams. And Pharaoh says to Joseph, Joseph, can you interpret dreams? And then Joseph, watch this, this is incredible to me. He says, no man can interpret dreams, but I know the God in heaven who can. Which was pretty shocking for Joseph to say to Pharaoh because Pharaoh thought of himself and, and all of Pharaoh's people thought of him as a kind of God, right? Do you feel the insult here? He's saying to Pharaoh, the God, well, man can't and you can't, but I know a God who can. What kind of confidence would you live with if you really believed that God was with you in every circumstance? Well, Joseph goes away to talk to God, and he comes back, and he says, listen, Pharaoh, God says that the dream means there will be seven years of feasting, those are the fat cows, followed by seven years of famine, those are the skinny cows. Use the seven years of feasting to get prepared. Save up some grain, store it up so you'll be ready. And so they do that. 
And Pharaoh is so grateful to Joseph that he actually promotes Joseph, puts him in charge of everything. Joseph becomes the prime minister of Egypt so that he can get Egypt prepared. Joseph is over literally everyone in the kingdom except, except Pharaoh, which, by the way, would have included Potiphar. Can you imagine how fun that reunion would have been, right? Just, okay, fun Bible stuff. Uh, now, fast forward 10 years. We're to our final scene. You ready? Scene four. Scene four. The famine has come. Things have gotten really, really, really bad. And the whole region, the whole ancient Middle East is starving. And the only place that you can get food is at Egypt. So, so watch this, full circle now. Jacob's father and brothers, his family, they're suffering too. And so Jacob, the father, sends his sons, those are Joseph's brothers, to Egypt to buy food. Joseph immediately recognizes them. But because he's dressed up like an Egyptian and speaking through an interpreter, they don't recognize that it's their brother. When Joseph sees them, he is so overcome with emotion. The Bible tells us that he just weeps. He cannot control himself. And eventually, after putting them through some tests to see if they've actually changed, he can't stand it anymore. He strips off his headdress. I imagine one of those, you know, cat look in Egypt. He strips it off and he goes to his brothers and says, ta-da, it's me, Joseph. Now, what kind of moment do you imagine that would have been for the brothers, right? Just, just imagine yourself as one of the brothers for a moment there. Do you think they were glad to see him? Do you think they were scared to death? How would you respond if those who wounded you were suddenly in front of you? How would you respond if you knew God was with you? Well, let's look at Joseph's response in chapter 45, verses 5 through 8. And now do not be distressed. This is Joseph talking to his brothers. Do not be distressed. Don't be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So, so, so then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of Egypt. Time out. <laughs> what? Joseph, you, you've, got, you've got all the power in the world. You, they don't need, you could do anything. Joseph, you could throw these guys in prison. You could have them put on, uh, up for execution. Joseph, this is your chance for payback, right? I mean, just think about what they did. But instead, Joseph forgives them. And not only that, he consoles them. He says, oh, don't, don't, be, don't be upset, guys. It's okay, right? And he says the most mysterious thing of all. He says, somehow, somehow, even though all of this was going on in the lower story, God was working for good. So, what do we do with a story like this one? 
What, what are we to do in, in Denver, North Carolina in the 20, what century are we in? 22nd century. What, what, what are we to do with this story? Well, I want to give us two things. Remember the upper story and lower story. I want to make one observation about each of these stories, and then we're going to pray. We'll sing and we'll go home, okay? So, so one observation about each of these. First is the upper story, the application of the upper story. You see, the story of Joseph is important because it shows us what God's sovereignty really looks like. Christians will often talk about God's sovereignty. They'll say things like, oh, you know what? God's got this one, or, or God's in control. He's still on the throne. And of course, on one level, these statements are true, right? But oftentimes, when Christians say things like this, what they think they mean is that God determines every human action and decision in our world, in the lower story. That somehow God decided what color socks I was going to wear today, right? That that is evidence of him being in control. It, it, you might think of it like this. Uh, it, it, this kind of idea of God's sovereignty is like God's the giant puppeteer, right? And he's just kind of pulling all the strings on human behavior, right? The, my favorite, my favorite, well, come on, sound of music, that's pretty good, right? Do you get the picture there? We see, the problem with God as the puppeteer is that he is as limited by human actions with his hands bound as human beings are to him. The Bible doesn't see God's sovereignty that way. God did not cause Joseph's father to play favorites. God did not incite his brothers to sell him into slavery. God did not stir up Potiphar's wife's lust to hit on him. These were all sinful decisions made freely by the human beings as part of the lower story. Do you see that? But watch this, because this is what's so remarkable. What's so remarkable about Joseph's story is that we see God working both through and in spite of human decisions to still accomplish his ultimate purposes. I love how the Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann describes it. He writes this. He says, in Joseph's story, we see the great mystery of faith. Neither the freedom of the creature nor the gracious sovereignty of God is canceled. They are not in conflict, nor are they to be equated. God's will makes use of all human action, but it is limited by no human choice. You see, God's sovereignty is not like the puppet show. It is much more like the improv show, whose line is it anyway? God works with the decisions and choices of the characters in the lower story, but he will always accomplish his ultimate purpose in his upper story. That is sovereignty. That is what Joseph says at the very end of Genesis is the picture of what God has been doing all along. Look with me at the very last verse in his story. He says this, do not be afraid. He's talking to his brothers. Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? No. You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Did God intend the harm that the brothers intended him? No. They intended harm. And God re-intended. He repurposed. He took those storylines and he wove in them a story of redemption to bring about the good of his ultimate purpose in the upper story. That is how we are to understand God's sovereignty. Which brings us now to our second point. The application for the lower story. 
Because Joseph's life is not just a picture of a God accomplishing his ultimate purposes. It is also a story of how we, a picture of how we are to live the life of faith, even when we can't see the whole story. You know, a lot of people think that if they trust in God, that everything in their life is going to work out for good, right? We, we kind of have this picture of the life of faith that everything is up and to the right, right? If I, if I give my life to Jesus and I follow him, my marriage will be great, my career will be great, my kids will be great. I don't know, Chick-fil-A will start opening on Sundays. Like everything's just going to be good, right? It's just going to be all up and to the right. But the truth is that that's not what the life of faith actually looks like. And when disappointment comes, and my friends, it will come. When disappointment comes or things don't go as expected, or you experience hardship or difficulty, you are only left to conclude then that God must not be in control. Or maybe worse, that God has abandoned you. And if your version of faith is up and to the right always, my friend, that faith will not survive your disappointment. But Joseph's story is way too honest to let us think that. Joseph's story reminds us that the real life of faith is often one of ups and downs, one of great highs and great lows. I love this image of Joseph's life right here, just up and down and up and down. But come on, come on, let's, let's be honest for a minute, right? Just, just you and me. Isn't it true that our faith grew the most in those seasons of difficulty in our lives? Isn't that true? I mean, think about your life. When were the times that you grew the most in faith? Was it when you were on top of the world and everything was hunky-dory? Or was it when you were in the valley, struggling to remember that God was with you? You see, the promise of the Scriptures is not that the life of faith will be all cake and roses, but that whenever, that whatever may come, this is the promise of Scripture, that whatever may come, whatever hardship, whatever difficulty, whatever highs, whatever lows, God will be with you. I love how the psalmist words it in these famous words. He says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. So let's come back to our question as we end. How would your life be different if you were absolutely confident that God was with you? Really, how would your life be different? What would it look like in your world? Even if just for one day, what if just tomorrow you were to live with an absolute confidence that God was with you? How would your life be different, right? How would your stress, your anxiety be different if you knew that God was with you? How, how would that difficult relationship be different if you were absolutely confident that God was with you? How would those fears, those struggles, how would the pandemic be different if you lived absolutely confident that God was with you? You see, there's a risk here for us because we do live on the highs and the lows. And for some of us, we're in one of those lows right now, right? And you're like, Aaron, I don't know. I kind of feel like Joseph. Like, dude, really? Is God with, really? Okay, maybe, right? 
That, that's a little bit easier. Right? I mean, all of us, when we hit rock bottom, the first thing we kind of do is we go, oh, God, help, right? That, that's kind of a natural impulse. But we can equally struggle with this when we're on top of our game. When we're on the peaks, the mountaintops, it's so easy to forget that God is with you. And for some of you today, you're in one of those high points. Man, it is going great. How would your life be different on that mountaintop if you remembered that God was with you? How might he be wanting to use you to bring a blessing, to bring a blessing to others around you just as he did Joseph? And for the rest of us who are in the trough, struggling, just like, oh God, how would life be different if you lived with the confidence that God was with you? Well, there's much more to Joseph's story. If you've been reading along with us in the whole story reading plan, I invite you to go and read it. Y'all, it is one of the most fascinating stories in all of the scriptures and indeed in all of the history of story. But our invitation is this. How would we live? How would you live if you lived with the absolute confidence that God was with you? Can we pray? Father, today we come uh, considering this remarkable story from your holy scriptures. And we recognize what your scriptures teach, that you are the sovereign Lord. You are the God of creation. There is nothing in this world that was made that you did not make. And yet, in your sovereignty, you have granted freedom and responsibility to us. So Lord, today we come and we ask that you would teach us what it means to trust in you, what it means to follow you, what it means to have faith in you, even when we can't see the whole story. God, give us the strength and confidence that comes from knowing you are always with us. And Lord, when we encounter difficulty or disappointment, would you help us to know and trust that you are with us, working out your purposes and our salvation. Lord, today again we surrender to you. We pledge to follow you to the best of our ability. And we do so in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.